What comes to mind when you hear the words church discipline? You know, for some, you immediately think healthy church. Maybe the Lord even used the discipline of the church in your own life to bring you back from straying. But for others, maybe you imagine something like the opening pages of the Scarlet Letter, written by Nathaniel Hawthorne. We meet a character named Hester Prynne. She's had a child by a man, not her husband. She's forced by the church and the magistrates to wear a scarlet A for her adultery. In the marketplace, she's stared down by these self-righteous gossips. One says to the other, I'll tell you a piece of my mind. If the hussy stood up for judgment before us, would she come off with such a sentence as the worshipful magistrates have awarded? Mary, I trow not. Another responds. At the very least, they should have put a brand of a hot iron on Hester Prynne's forehead. Another. This woman has brought shame on us all. She ought to die. And Hawthorne writes, Meager indeed and cold was the sympathy that a transgressor might look for from such bystanders. Some people can't help but think of images like that. And sadly, that's because leaders have sometimes abused their authority. And churches have sometimes acted unjustly and without mercy. But I'd venture to say that in every instance where church discipline has gone badly, the words of Matthew 18 were not taken to heart. Last time in Matthew 18, we started the fourth of five blocks of teaching on Jesus' kingdom. Jesus is explaining the communal life of those within his kingdom. And today we learn how to exhibit the Lord's presence and care by correcting each other when sin and unrepentance exists. And my hope is that these verses protect us from abusing our authority and equip us with compassionate care and accountability. So let's read them together, starting in verse 15. Our Lord says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. We're going to tackle this in five points. Point number one, remember how correction has a context. Remember how the correction that Jesus is talking about here has a context. Correction goes sideways when Christians fail to recall the context of these verses. In some cases, for instance, 
One church member will look down their nose at the other person in sin. The attitude isn't to serve, but it is to condemn. But such an approach fails to recognize the humility that must characterize those belonging to Jesus. Recall verses 3 and 4. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So before Jesus instructs us to correct, he calls us to humility, a willingness to go low. And serve. It's much like Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Also a context dealing with correction in the church. Galatians 6, 1 says, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him, how? In a spirit of gentleness. Keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted... Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. So even in that context of correction, we see this humility. Correction must come with humility. Gentleness. Keeping watch on yourself, not thinking too highly of yourself. Being willing to bear the other burden, the the burdens of the other person. Correction also assumes that we hold each other in high regard. Uh, So in verse 5, we we saw that to receive Jesus' disciple is to receive Jesus himself. In verse 10, uh, we shouldn't despise Jesus' disciples, his little ones, because in heaven their angels always see the face of Jesus' Father. You will also notice uh, in verse 15 of our text today, it begins with the word brother. So to belong to Jesus is to belong to, to family. Right? We, we love one another as, as family. So much like you would notice when things aren't quite right at home, or when somebody's missing from the dinner table, or when a sibling makes some poor choices and it's eating away at your heart, That's how it is in the family of God. Your heart aches when you you see sin destroying your brother or your sister. You hurt when they're not around anymore. Correction also comes in a context where Jesus' community shares a hatred for sin and its devastating effects. Uh, We saw this in verses 6 to 9. Jesus talked about sin and stumbling blocks with, with utter seriousness. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it'd be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. And then he goes on to talk about how we must take, take radical measures to kill sin in our own lives, gouging out eyes, cutting off hands. When we correct sin in others, this context shows that we are, one, protecting that individual from destruction, and we are protecting the community, all of Jesus' little ones, from stumbling blocks. So in Jesus' family, we hate the things that destroy our family. Not correcting sin in the church is to hate the family. It it despises Jesus' little ones. More importantly, though, it defies the king himself who demands our obedience. Correction also copies our Heavenly Father's care. It copies our Heavenly Father's care. 
I used the word emulate last week. Rachel said that was a bit technical. Uh, And maybe not a lot of people got it. So I turned to my children and asked them if they got it. And they said no. So we're going with copy this week. All right? We copy our Heavenly Father's care. Uh, We we can't miss how, how verse 15 follows the shepherd in verses 12 to 14. He says there, If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray... Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So, or in this way, it's it's not the will of my Father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So this portrays God the Father, right? He, He searches for us when we go astray. And our efforts to correct are the outworking of the concern that God Himself has for us. We pursue each other because this is the way our God pursues us. So when someone strays into sin, we search for them. Right? We, we bring them back to the fold. We rejoice right, when they come back. When they're found. And then one further piece of this context is forgiveness. Uh, We'll tackle that more next time. But it comes in verses 21 to 35. And basically the point there is that those who have been forgiven by God forgive others. This is the context for correction. And when you heed these words, it shapes how you approach correction from the outset. It makes sense of why we'd pursue it to begin with. And it shapes the manner in which we go about it. Second, correct sin aiming to gain each other. Correct sin aiming to gain each other. Jesus outlines a process in verses 15 to 17. And that process involves correcting sin. So verse 15 introduces the problem. If your brother sins against you. Now other translations don't include the words against you. uh, Like the ESV does. So the New American Standard, the New English Translation, the NIV, a a few others. They all have simply, if your brother sins And that's because the words against you don't occur in the earliest manuscripts. Uh, Possibly they were added in light of verse 21. If you look down there, Peter asked the Lord, How often will my brother sin against me? Okay, so maybe they're trying to make sense of this in light of the whole. We don't know. But if they're missing, uh, Jesus' point becomes much broader, doesn't it? We correct sin not only when someone sins against us personally, but also whenever we notice a pattern of sinful behavior. Uh, Consider Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 again. If anyone is caught in any transgression, in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Also the church, uh, also a context where there's correction in the church and the the church must put out an immoral brother. Um, And uh, Paul, but Paul at the end broadens the application. He says, to anyone who bears the name of brother, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard or a swindler. And later on in, uh, in chapter 6, we learn why that's the case, because those people are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So in short, the correction in Matthew 18, I think, applies more broadly, uh, especially given, given these other passages in the New Testament that, that help us. Um, if your brother sins, if your sister sins... Now, some might find that surprising. 
Uh, but if we remember the gospel, we shouldn't be surprised at all. Paul asks in Romans chapter 6, verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And then he goes on to, to rejoice in the work of Christ when he says, our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. He adds, the death that Christ died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we correct sin in each other's life because of the gospel. Jesus really does free people from their sins. We might have remaining sin, but sin no longer reigns. It is no longer right the power that dominates us. It is no longer our master. This is why we can correct it, because of the gospel. People sometimes think that, that grace means tolerance for sin. But grace never minimizes sin. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says it is the grace of God that not only brings salvation, it trains us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. That's what grace does. So grace meets us where we are, but it doesn't leave us where we are. It actually changes us. Knowing that gospel, we correct sin. Knowing that our Father is holy, we work to conform ourselves to His holiness. But notice... We correct sin with the aim of gaining each other. Okay, the goal in verse 15 is gaining your brother or your sister. Paul uses the same word in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 to speak of winning people to Jesus. God using Paul's efforts to save some and to keep others who are already in the church. That's the goal of Jesus' process in Matthew 18. Again, we are supposed to copy what our good shepherd is like, right? We're like the shepherd who searches for the one who went astray. I read from Galatians 6 earlier, but listen to this one from uh, James chapter 5, verse 19. Uh, It's another clear example of this aim in, in, in correction. My brothers, he says... If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So in other words, church discipline should never be viewed as a convenient way to push someone out of the church. We should never approach it flippantly, as if to say, eh, she was never that involved anyway. Discipline never has the aim of seeing how much we can humiliate someone. No, when God corrects sin in our lives, it's to bring us closer to himself. Same in the church with his people. The aim is salvation, keeping keeping each other from hell and winning each other over to a deeper commitment to Jesus. One of the means God uses to keep his people persevering is you getting involved in each other's lives. So that leads us to point number three, trust and follow Jesus' process. Trust and follow Jesus' process. Verses uh, 15 to to 17 outline four steps, and we'll start there with the first imperative, go and tell. All right, so verse 15, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault. So don't wait around and stew over his thoughts, over over his fault. Don't sit and grow bitter. I can't believe she said that. Don't ignore it like sin isn't a big deal. 
No, go and tell him his fault. That's your duty. That word behind tell him his fault, we saw it last week, actually, uh, when Jordan preached on 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. He said, uh, we saw there, it says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove. That's our word, reprove. Uh, Ephesians 5.11 uses it as well. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Expose them. Same word. So if your brother sins, go reprove him. Go expose him. Help shine some light on the darkness. We express disapproval of the disapproval of the sin and we work to help them recognize their wrongdoing now we need to be careful in this process jesus isn't uh telling us everything why we have the rest of the scriptures to kind of flesh out some of the details um that go into this but but we do need to be careful sin is not determined by your feelings all right Little flags should be going off. You say, like, I feel like you're just always. Uh, sin isn't measured by personal preferences. Something, someone not doing things the way you, you, you think they ought to be done. Sin isn't determined by the culture and what the culture deems good or bad. Sin is not determined by the opinions of your pastors. Sin is determined by what God says. In his word. And we need to be sure that God's word is rightly understood and rightly rightly applied to the situation. Also, when Jesus says, if your brother sins, he doesn't really tell us, well, which sins do we confront in this way or when? Uh, There are some clues. For instance, the assumption is that the wit, that, uh, that you can witness the sin, right? So it's outward. That's how you know to go to your brother. Also, given Jesus' words about stumbling blocks in verses 5 to 10, the sin has serious consequences. So it's, it's threatening to Jesus' little ones. And the other clue is that it's unrepentant. There's, there's an obvious hold it has on someone. They're not fighting it. There's a pattern of them walking in it. You can observe this. And so that might be a starting place, kind of sift through things in your mind. Is the sin outward, serious, and unrepentant? At the same time, by labeling it serious, I don't mean we kind of wait to address something until sin takes a serious hold. Right? A one-time instance of someone lying to win the approval of others and... A years-long pattern of someone lying to embezzle money? Those two situations are very different. And the church would need to act in those situations in very different ways. But it's worth addressing the sin of lying in the first instance so that it never turns into the serious hold that that lying had in the second instance, right? Right? We don't wait till anger turns into murder. We address anger in the heart, right? Think, things like that. We got to think. Of, so, so don't. I don't mean you know by serious. We we wait. We wait until something is until sin has taken a serious hold. Uh, there's also the warning that Jesus gave in uh, chapter seven, verses one to five, against judgmentalism, taking the log out of your own eye before you address the speck in your brother or sister's eye. The point in Jesus' words here is not to create a community in which everyone's on a sin hunt all the time. Uh, Proverbs 19.11. A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is his glory to overlook an offense. Uh, 1 Peter 4.8. Love covers a multitude of sins. 
So they're applying these, these words of Jesus takes wisdom, right? It takes humility, it takes patience, it takes help from the Holy Spirit to know when it's appropriate and, and, and the, the appropriate time to correct. Jesus also clarifies uh, how the first step of correction is one-on-one. He says, between you and him alone. Far too often, that's the last step people take. Their first step is telling someone else about so-and-so's sin problem. Their first step is to go and tell the pastor. Now, some sins must involve others immediately, like in the case of abuse, or uh, if legal, legal authorities needed to step in. But setting aside those Exceptions, the first step is always one-on-one. We live in a culture where people spew their judgments against others publicly all the time, often with no attempts to speak to the individual. They are sinning in the way they're addressing someone else's sin. And I'm talking about Christian cultures. Jesus says, talk it out one-on-one first. This protects us from gossip. It protects us from mob rule, from unnecessary humiliation and hurt. You go to them privately. You open the word together. You explain what you found to be sinful. So where sin is truly present, then you call them, you call that person to repentance. If he listens, Jesus says, you have gained your brother. So that's that's the first step in in Jesus' process. And the the listening here is, you know, he heeds your word, he he repents, he turns around, turns his life around, so he's not doing that anymore. That's the first step. All right, verse 16 mentions a second step, if necessary. Meaning, if the person listens to you, we don't move to step two. If the person listens to you, you don't go talk to others about it. It's done. It's over. But if he doesn't listen, right? Jesus says to take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So the next step here is broadening the circle of care out a little, a little bit more. Um, notice it's, it's not you tell him and then you go tell the church. There's other steps. It keeps, keeps the circle small. It, it doesn't need to be, you know, involve everybody immediately. So he's broadening the circle of care here. Jesus takes uh, these words actually from Deuteronomy chapter 19, uh, verse 15. Uh, it's a, in the context of case, case law, and, and Moses tells the people, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And the point was to further accountability. Right? The, the, the context of Deuteronomy 19 is, is warning the people against false witnesses. And it's teaching the judges how to inquire diligently into something to establish the truth and make sure that justice is upheld. So Jesus includes further witnesses for similar reasons. That, that every charge may be established or determined. So the point is not only to help the person in sin see the gravity of their error by broadening that circle a little bit more. It also ensures that the person doing the confronting is being honest and just. Now you've got two or three people who are reading the Bible together and drawing conclusions together and making sure that the correction is right and appropriate and handled in in, in a good way. And the hope here is that the person repents again. If he does, great. The process stops there. But if he refuses to listen to them, Jesus takes us to a third step. 
Verse 17. He says, tell it to the church. Now, it should be noted that Jesus never gives us a timeline in these verses. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in there. Because every situation and every person is different. You, you've got to apply the wisdom from the scriptures to, to determine uh, a, lot, a whole lot of things. To know how long to wait. We don't know how many days or weeks to allow for repentance to take place when somebody first hears of that, correct, that word of correction. The timeline will often look different depending on the nature of the sin or, or how much it has a hold in somebody's life. It'll depend on the knowledge a person has of, of the Christian faith. It, it'll depend on the, on the clarity with which the Scripture addresses the sin in question. It'll depend on how we measure genuine repentance. So there's often a lot to work through in bringing someone to repentance and and letting God's word and the Spirit do their work. But eventually, where repentance, where where unrepentance persists, uh, we must bring the matter before the church. In our congregation, the elders are usually involved by this point, and we usually take care of this at a, at, a, at one of our monthly members meetings. But the point is to to broaden the circle of care even further. Now the whole church is looking at the Bible. The whole church is is, uh, taking the Bible and applying it to the situation and making sure everything is is right and in order. Also implied in verse 17 is that the church speaks to the individual in sin. That's why he says, if he refuses to listen to, even to the church. And so we've got the church here now lovingly calling them to repentance. The church is praying and pursuing the person in hopes of gaining him or her. But if the person refuses to listen even to the church, then Jesus adds a fourth step. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now to this point... What does a Gentile and tax collector represent in Matthew's gospel? Uh, look, at, look at chapter 5, uh, verses 46 and 47. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus says there, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? The you being his disciples, those who uh, represent his kingdom as citizens, right? If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your, uh, only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do in the same. So he's talking about those outside the covenant community, not, not citizens of his kingdom there. Uh, then in chapter 6, verse 7, He says, uh, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Right, so again, we're, he's comparing his covenant community, those who are just the pagans who are doing their babbling, right? Before their, their false gods. In chapter 9, verse 10. Chapter 9, verse 10, Jesus is reclining at table in, the, in this house, and it says, Behold, many tax collectors and sinners, sinners came and, and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, and then the Pharisees get ticked off, and Jesus says, uh, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay? The lost. So within Matthew's gospel, the the, the Gentile and the tax collector represent those from the pagan, unbelieving world. Okay, they represent those who are not yet following Jesus. Meaning, if someone refuses to repent and follow Jesus' word, they are proving themselves to be outside Jesus' kingdom. They're they're acting like the rest of the world that that doesn't submit to Jesus' kingship. And so we are to regard them as such. It'd be a lie to treat someone as belonging to Jesus' kingdom when their pattern of their lives proves otherwise. 
meaning we no longer treat them as a brother or sister in Christ. We no longer fellowship with them like we would do the rest of the family of God. We no longer share in the Lord's Supper with them. We relate to them like we relate to the rest of the lost world. And some cases of correction will even require a deliberate separation from the individual altogether. So Paul had to instruct the church this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, didn't he? Where there was a, the, the man involved with sexual immorality, and it said, and of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans. And Paul says, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Not even to eat with such a one. So it takes wisdom to know how the church needs to act in different cases of correction. Our own church bylaws seek to sort some of that out ahead of time. Uh, But in all cases of correction, the point is clear. Where unrepentance persists, we can't pretend like the person is a Christian. Let's be clear, Christians still sin. The assumption here is your your brother sinned, right? That's, That's where it started. This side of heaven, Christians will not be will not reach perfection. So the picture is not, the picture here is not the Christians who don't sin correcting the Christians who do sin. Everybody's sinning, but Christians repent when their sin is corrected and addressed. Christians turn from their sins because they love Jesus more than their sin. They want to follow his word. And when that's not the case, then they are proving where their heart truly lies. And it does not lie with Jesus and his kingdom lies in the world. This is why the, the um, again, Paul addressed, when he addresses the situation in Corinth in chapter 5, he speaks of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that, that's the idea uh, when he speaks earlier in the chapter of delivering someone over to Satan, meaning Satan's domain. The outs, those outside the kingdom, those inside the kingdom are safe with Jesus and his people. So when somebody persists in sin, they're proving that they're not part of Jesus' kingdom. So that's the process Jesus lays out for us. And you need to ask yourself, have you embraced this process? Many churches have abandoned it. Uh, Part of that is due to people embracing our culture's autonomous moral individualism. Man defines his own reality. Man lives on his own terms. He's free from anything that might presume authority over him. And when that belief system affects the church, suddenly the life of the believer is considered off limits to other Christians. Confronting a brother or sister in sin is now an invasion of my privacy. That's between me and Jesus. You you leave me alone. Another reason churches abandon Jesus' process is that they're concerned with efficiency more than they are purity. Why put something in place that might reduce your numbers? Why put something in place that would potentially force the church to remove someone that's given us large sums of money? Other churches are simply not grounded in sound doctrine. There's no confessional standard that they follow. And so there can be no enforced correction because no one is sure what the Bible teaches. 
or, or how it might affect the way we live. Other churches don't pursue discipline to avoid the burdens that it lays on people. We don't want to hurt people's feelings here. We don't want to have those hard conversations. We don't want to make their relatives angry. We, we just don't want to put up with all the grief that goes around along with, with removing someone and long members meetings. And... But none of these re- reasons change the demands of Christ our King. Nor do they remove the responsibility of Christ's church to obey Him as King. We must embrace what Jesus teaches us and we must follow Him in it. To abandon Jesus' process of correction will be to the detriment of His church. When we turn a blind eye to sin, we are saying that we know better than Jesus. When we refuse to be corrected by our brothers and sisters... We are rejecting the very means that Christ uses to keep us faithful. We need to trust that Jesus' process is good. If you're, if you're visiting with us today trying to decide on what kind of church to join, you should never join, join a church that is unwilling to follow Jesus' words here. You want a church that will correct your sin, that will care enough to pursue you when you go astray. Point number four, when we follow Jesus' process, we display the rule of heaven on earth. We display the rule of heaven on earth. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What does that mean? Well, let's trace a couple of clues here. Uh, One isn't immediately apparent in in the ESV, but several other translations show it. I'll use the New American uh, Standard. It says, Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. It's called the future perfect. Okay, the point isn't that we make decisions on earth and heaven follows us. Rather, our decisions on earth reflect what heaven will have already found to be so. So we follow heaven. We follow God's word He displays what His heavenly rule looks like in His Word. And when we follow that Word, we display publicly for people to see in the world what His heavenly rule would have decided on earth. Uh, That's one clue. Another clue comes from chapter 16, verse 19. This binding and loosing language was first spoken of there. Uh, Jesus tells Peter... So this is the context where Peter has just confessed Jesus is Christ, Son of God. And Jesus tells Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So this binding and loosing is related to this idea of of Peter as apostle having the, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now we're seeing the church right, exercise the same authority, binding and loosing, but it's based on this idea of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The keys symbolize authority to govern entry and exclusion. In verse 18, that entry and exclusion is based on a person's confession of Jesus as Messiah. So if we, if we relate that, those ideas from chapter 16 back to our passage, when a person repents, they are displaying that their confession is Jesus. Jesus is my king. I follow him. But when a person refuses to repent, they display another confession. Their allegiances are not with Jesus, the king. 
And then the, the, so the idea is that we are then recognizing what heaven would say about this. Heaven would say that they're not actually part of his kingdom because they don't want to repent. They want their sin more than they want Jesus. So this, this, this ought to sober us, right? The decisions that we make in members meetings to affirm people for baptism or to, to, uh, to add people for membership or, or transfer their care to another church or to remove those who love their sin more than Jesus, in those decisions, we are representing heaven on earth. That's why we take membership so seriously here. Our actions serve as a visible theater to what's true in heaven. And then finally, number five, in our correction, we must rely on Jesus' presence. Rely on Jesus' presence. Verse 19, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Notice how Jesus mentions the two agreeing in verse 19, and then also the two or three gathered in verse 20. He's recalling the two or three witnesses mentioned earlier in verse 16. Okay, these words have a context in church discipline. They're not meant for you to just go grab a couple more Christians and pray really hard to get what you want. Right? It, this is, the context is discipline. Jesus is pulling off the two or three witnesses earlier in the passage. But he adds this context of prayer, if two of you agree on earth about any matter for which they ask. Jesus used that earlier in uh, chapter 6, verse 8, when he gives us instructions on how to pray. Uh, He uses it again in chapter 7, verse 11, when he says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give, uh, give, where did it go? Give, Give good things to those who ask him. So throughout this this whole process of correction, uh, Jesus reveals that we have our Father's ear, that He's listening to us, hearing our cries. He, He guides us in the process. He even promises to act on our behalf, giving us whatever we need for the process. And and then it's grounded in in that the fact that His Son is with us. So so why does He grant this? Because His Son is with us. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So the church isn't alone. Jesus is present in his body when they gather to act this way. If you remember, uh, this fits what we learned from the book of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3. Remember there's this, this glorious picture of the Son of Man, but what's the Son of Man doing? He's He's walking in and out of the lampstands, and the lampstands symbolize the church. And so you get this beautiful picture of the risen Lord Jesus, present with his churches, present with all of his churches, walking among them. He knows their sins. He's correcting them in love. He's drawing them back to himself. He's asking the churches to act on his behalf because he's there with them. So Jesus sees the various situations that we're, we're encountering. He, he understands the hurt that we feel when these kinds of things come to pass. He, he knows what we need for each moment. I love how the Lord consistently throughout the Scriptures calls us to obey Him, but, but always with the assurance of His presence in our obedience. We go about these things with him. 
So if you're scared to obey a passage like this, if you fear that you're going to make things really awkward now by talking to your brother or sister in sin, right? If, if, you, if, you've, uh, if you've wanted to say something to them but, but have been nervous to act on that, I think you should take courage here because when you take these steps of, of obedience, we're assured Jesus will be with us. Emmanuel is not a name we recall once a year. It's a name we love every day of the year. I am with you, Jesus tells us, even to the end of the age. Jesus is with us throughout the year in all the matters that we encounter as a church. Even when it's harder, like correcting sin. So why don't we pray now and ask him to act as we follow. Father, thank you that we have these pictures in the scriptures of Jesus being present with us. He is here with us now. I ask that you would guide us according to his word. He is the king. He has all authority. We want to submit to him and obey him in all matters. Uh, I pray that you would give us grace to follow him and also graciousness with one another as we correct sin in each other's lives. A lot of this happens, Lord, so often we don't even realize it just through the basic teaching of the word, the conviction we feel by your spirit, whether it's in care group or, or here at, at, on Sundays or with one-on-one over coffee doing a women's Bible study on Monday night. Often you, are, you using your people are already disciplining us, forming us, correcting us. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to help us repent and walk out repentance together. Uh, Make us open if we're ever corrected by somebody in the church. Make us humble and open to receive that correction. To love that correction. Help us to be clear and compassionate, just in our dealings, And in the end, I pray that we would mature into Christ-likeness, into his love, and serve as a theater to the world of what your kingdom is truly like on earth. In Jesus' name, amen.